0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about victory commemoration. goes to plan this inappropriate conversation will come out before or at least on may the 8th of this year and the date is significant because it's one of the reasons that i'm recording on this particular topic at this time dealing with victory commemoration i'm actually timing it specifically to the anniversary of victory europe day that would be may 8th of 1945 and and of course sunday of this year is may 8th of 2016 So a significant number of years have gone by. And what occurs to me in that span of years is that I don't remember ever hearing anybody at least present to me a celebration recognizing this particular day. So let me just throw out a couple of ideas right up front to kind of discuss from this perspective why it's of a concern to me. And it's not a major concern. It's frankly a minor issue. But I wonder if we don't remember negative events Uh, more clearly than positive events and i know that that's not true across the board when a celebrity dies you're more likely to uh, hear people coming along years later uh, calling that celebrity to mind on their birthday than on their day of death but it's not like being asked to remember somebody on their day of death is that unusual it's just that when we think about military conflict in american history say in the last 100 years or so and not to discount the importance of World War I, which is right on that 100-year-ago mark, but especially if you start the date after World War I and say, what about American military history from that point forward? There really is no doubt that the most significant conflict in the, well, in the world during that span was World War II. Again, an argument can be made that World War I and II might be on par with each other, that uh, casualties, loss of life, there's interesting analysis to be done there. But just speaking as an American... And how Americans remember these important uh, international events, I would say that nothing after World War II quite compares to the, the peril and the amount of conflict that was going on in the world at, at any given time. The Korean War followed it, Vietnam after that, and then of course we've had a ton of uh, police action kind of skirmishes and interventions since then in the Middle East and in Latin America, Cuban miss- Missile Crisis coming sort of in between Korea and Vietnam. And a couple of different forays into Iraq, uh, one that you know perhaps could be justified because of uh, the invasion of Kuwait and the, uh, the desire of the international community, including a lot of uh, neighboring countries, to expel Iraq from Kuwait and restore the government that was there at the time, and then of course the later uh, issue of of invading Kuwait, of invading Iraq again, and in this case uh, over the alleged you know, a threat posed by them because of weapons of mass destruction that were never found because, frankly, the evidence suggesting that they were there was questionable to begin with. But in all of these conflicts, the one thing I don't want to do is is exalt World War II above all others and play that greatest generation card and do anything to speak negatively of the service of American men and women in the military, which, frankly, service is still going on. Much, much smaller degree in the Middle East compared to where we were in Iraq not that many years ago, and of course a significant presence and significant amount of conflict still happening in Afghanistan. I don't want to do that, but what I want to do is call out that if there was one date, if I was to ask the question of what are the dates of World War II that stand out to us, that mean the most to us, and obviously you're going to have people quickly arrive at, at dates like December 7th and June 6th. And I may make the argument, perhaps just as a fan of industrial rock music, that September 1st sticks in my mind as well. And these are all dates that reflect ongoing conflict. Uh, You've got December 7th, the day that will live in infamy, the Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor, drawing the United States into World War II. You've got uh, D-Day, June 6th, the the Americans and uh, British and other forces landing in Normandy, trying to take France back from the Germans and ultimately win the war in Europe, and September 1st, the beginning of that war in many ways, the date that uh, Hitler invaded Poland after having signed treaties suggesting that he would would need to do no such thing. These are all days that are uh, either the instigation of war or perhaps even the turning point of war, but I'm very curious about the fact that I know that in my head, I don't really have an active memory of May 8th being a day to celebrate the day that the war in Europe was over. You can make an argument that maybe we shouldn't be putting too much on that date because it wasn't the only date. In fact, after May 8th, a lot of Americans, perhaps even my uncle, still facing peril on the Pacific side because the war in the Pacific wasn't over. But if I paused here for a moment, in fact, I will. I'll pause here for a moment to read some of the uh, you know, Wikipedia entries on these key dates where the greatest, uh, most um, perilous war of my parents' lifetime came to a close. Do we remember the date of the victory over Japan? If VE Day is hard for us to come up with, because it all wasn't really wrapped up and over yet, is VJ Day easier for us to come up with? And I'm going to suggest the answer to that question is probably not. It might be actually relatively easier between the two, but neither one of these dates are the dates that we think of when we contemplate the key events in World War II. And it's ironic to me that the end of the war, the ultimate victory in the war, doesn't figure more prominently on our calendars than it does. Here's what Wikipedia says about Europe. Victory in Europe Day is the article. Generally known as VE Day, or simply V-Day, was the public holiday celebrated on the 8th of May, 1945, 7th of May in Commonwealth realms, to mark the formal acceptance of the Allies of World War II, uh, Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender of its armed forces. It thus marked the end of World War II in Europe. The term VE Day is, existed as early as September 1944 in anticipation of the victory. But it really took you know, the death of Adolf Hitler, the end of April, to begin the process of actually getting, just a few days later, to a formal VE Day. For the sake of argument, we'll call it uh, May the 8th. It, there's a question of whether or not it's May the 7th, the day that surrender was announced, or the day that it was actually signed. Those, that's the difference between the two days. What is the date of VJ Day? Because both of these two dates, from a World War II perspective, might have been of interest to the entire world. VE wasn't just Europe. Uh, North Africa and the Middle East were engaged in that world war. And obviously, uh, Japan's behavior leading up to and during World War II affected pretty much all of Asia, and and Oceania was not, not left untouched either. So here's the article from Wikipedia on Victory Over Japan Day also known as Victory in the Pacific, or VJ Day, is the day which Japan surrendered in World War II, in effect ending the war. The term has been applied to both of the days on which the initial announcement of Japan's surrender was made, the afternoon of August 15th, 1945, in Japan, and because of time zone differences to August 14th, 1945, when it was announced in the United States and the rest of the Americas and eastern Pacific Islands, as well as to September 2nd, 1945, when the signing of the surrender document occurred, officially ending World War II. So perhaps one of the problems is that you really can't point to a day. Uh, Even Pearl Harbor, you can pretty much point to a day. It happened on that day. It was December 7th. But we don't get hung up over, like, D-Day quite the same. I've got no doubt that storming the beach in Normandy lasted more than just June 6th. That wasn't a tidy little three, four, five hour affair, like the beginning of the war on the Pacific side. But here we've got dates for uh, August 14th or 15th or September 2nd, all of which could be meaning the victory over Japan and the final end of World War II, from an American perspective, finishing up on both fronts. So it could be that having a specific and precise date to point to that is true across the globe is, yeah, maybe that's an issue. One reason why we don't fix on those dates. But I wonder if it's more, if there's a question of how we observe commemoration. Because I would even say that on the Pacific side of the conflict, your average American is more likely, while unlikely to pick any of these dates out of a hat, more likely to remember dates in the uh, Japan theater coming a week earlier when the atomic bombs landed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that we might have considered those to be key dates reflecting the end of the war as well, because certainly by the time Nagasaki was bombed, the end of the war was obvious. Uh, and like with the E-Day, it took a few days from Hitler's suicide to ultimate surrender. It also took a few days here, from the dropping of atomic bombs on the island of Japan to the ultimate surrender. But it is this, uh, this question, this difference to me, of how we fixate on and uh, commemorate the beginning of these conflicts, but not the end of these conflicts. And what does it say about us and and the way we manage conflict in general? It seems to me that from a military perspective, another reason why perhaps we don't fixate too much on victory days might be the fact that in all the conflicts since then, the victory days have been been even more imprecise than they are when we're looking at um, VJ Day and, and probable dates where you could identify a day on the calendar with that moniker in both August and September. When exactly do you declare victory in the Korean conflict, if, in fact, you can actually declare victory at all? Vietnam is, of course, legendary for being a conflict where it's impossible to necessarily, even precisely, say exactly when it ended, and then you have the extra problem of deciding whether you could even begin to claim that it ended in any sort of victory. Even the Iraq conflict, George W. Bush declaring mission accomplished in the most recent Iraq war, for want of a better word, long before that mission actually was accomplished. And I don't believe anybody right now could point to a date in the calendar and say, that's when it all came to a close. That's when we declare victory. That's when it all ended. And to me, I find this very interesting In my personal life, I wonder if this doesn't play out to some degree as well. I'm more likely to remember a negative and traumatic day by date than I am to remember a uh, glorious and wonderful day by date. Now, I'm good with dates. Generally speaking, I, I can actually disturb people with some of the areas where my memory gets alarmingly specific. But having said that, I still probably have to think through certain things. I never really... Hold in the front of my mind how old I am. When the question of what is your age comes up, I usually end up doing the math. I ask what year it is if I don't have that in the front of my mind. Gauge where I am in the year versus my birthday and do the subtraction to figure out from that day to my year of my birth, how old am I now? I just don't hold those dates in my head. And I'm not the most sentimental person when it comes to recognizing sort of the holidays that our our pop culture says we're supposed to recognize and commemorate. But I've never been one to forget the day of my wedding anniversary. I don't forget the date of my wife's birthday, even though I'm always a little bit sketchy on my own from time to time. So I do remember important dates that are positive. But even some of the important dates that I, I remember now positively as meaning the most to me, those can sometimes be days where I'm looking back fondly on what at the time might have been incredibly stressful or very traumatic. I've talked before in previous inappropriate conversations about events that happened to me on February 7th, 1987. I don't just remember the the date. I actually remember the time, the precise time, because something that is that memorable occurs, something that feels like a direct answered prayer or a conversation with God. You're not going to forget that sort of thing. You're going to latch onto it and remember But I'd love to think that the servicemen and women who were still in the war, at the end of World War II, would latch on to the VE and VJ days with the same sort of fervor, that they would stick with them 30 years later, like some of the most important dates in my life have stuck with me a full 30 years later. And whether that's true on an individual basis, it certainly doesn't appear to be true on a national basis. And I'm wondering, to ask the question gently because I know it's insensitive, because I don't have a ton of direct experience here, But I'm wondering if the difference between the way we remember more and commemorate more key dates around World War II, uh, remembering dates that even go above and beyond the actual victory itself, and have so few uh, date-specific memories about any of the conflicts that have happened since, it either could be because the significance of World War II has cast a shadow over all military conflict since it. That's a very valid and intriguing theory. Or it also could be because we don't have the same amount of national respect for the sacrifice made in those subsequent conflicts. The Cold War, in other words, taking some of the shine off the mythology of military conflict, conquest, and victory, perhaps. And of course, the nature of a police action, meaning that there may not be any such thing as victory, even when a mission is successfully accomplished. A lot of the, the biggest, most important things that we did militarily during Korea and Vietnam, were locked down as classified for years and years afterwards. Some things may, in fact, still be locked down as classified. So maybe we don't celebrate the wins because we struggle to perceive them as wins. And that really bothers me for the kinds of people who have made significant sacrifices and perhaps come back with lingering issues from their commitment to serve during those times. I wish, in other words, that we would focus more of our commemoration on victory, than on tragedy, but probably the most memorable date in the entire calendar here in my lifetime, and certainly in the last, say, 15 years or so. It's got to be September 11th. 9-11 would be the first day that you would probably come up with if you asked a large group of people, name me a date on the calendar that is significant in American history. Just narrow it down to America for now. And that day would be viewed as much more significant because, you know, something like two or three thousand people died that day and a tremendous amount of destruction was done. And of course, in response to that, America and other countries have engaged in you know military acts that have killed thousands upon thousands more in a military response to the events that occurred. So I don't want to downplay 9-11 in any significant way, but if you add up all of the military costs, including human casualties, that came during World War II, you'd like to think there'd be a lot more energy around celebrating the end of that conflict. And it strikes me as interesting and odd, even in maybe a minor way, that it's worth calling out that this weekend, I can't name a single place in any of my circles, circles of family, circles of friends, in my local community, where somebody is celebrating May the 8th as the end of World War II in Europe.
1: Dan Carlin, it's hardcore history. Give you an example of what I mean. Ever fought an elephant in hand-to-hand combat? You... Your relatives, your neighbors, some acquaintances get together on your street. I'll give you some swords and some spears and some javelins, and I'm going to put an elephant on the other side of the street with one guy on top of him, and I'm going to tell you to go get each other. Put that mental image in your mind for a second. The events. The war between Nazi Germany and the Communist Soviet Union. If you took that out of the greater scheme of World War II and just looked at it by itself, it would be the largest war in human history. The drama. And what I said to my friend who asked me what I thought an Apache, raid the Af- Aftermath of an Apache raid was like. I said, Imagine you were one of the police officers that was the first to show up at one of the Manson murder scenes. The deep questions. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com.
0: We're dealing in this country today with a broad set of either or fallacies, and anybody who pays even the remotest attention to me on Facebook, where I've got pages for both the Walk the Earth podcast and the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, or on Twitter, where I'm at IC underscore Greg, or frankly, even on some of the older episodes of Inappropriate Conversations I've been sharing clips and hints of on SoundCloud. I'm also IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud. It's easy to find me complaining, perhaps even railing, about the false dichotomy and the number of either-ors that were presented, but as we get further and further into election year 2016... I think it's only going to get worse because now that the uh, process that the Republican and Democrat parties use to pick their candidates are winding down to nominating somebody to run for national office, the either or is just going to get worse. And frankly, it frustrates me because to me, the either or that I'm wrestling with is do I vote for either of these extremely corrupt political parties who think who have a distorted sense of self-importance when it comes to American constitutional history or do I go with an independent? That's the the true dichotomy I'm wrestling with. But no, we're going to hear just a ton of, of inane blather for months and months now over either Hillary or Trump. Most likely that's the combination. Either the Republican or the Democrat. Either liberal or conservative. And all of these things are ultimately a very false dichotomy. They're every bit as false as the dichotomy that says that there's only two genders, male and female, despite the fact that there's an incredible amount of clearly documented medical evidence of children who were born with both sets of sexual organs, and at the time of birth, doctors and parents have to make choices about what to do in that situation. It's not incredibly common, but it is also absolutely true. And we don't do anyone a service by pretending that things that are factually true aren't because we find them uncomfortable. But here we are. Is it possible, in an either-or dichotomy, to either reject both, or to expand the horizon. And one of the places I'd like to take it in context of this particular topic, and in looking at our different drummer coming up here in a little bit, I want to talk about whether or not there is something invalid or uh, illogical or unacceptable about the notion that you could have served the country bravely and effectively during your time in military service and still have a perspective that we should not be in as many military conflicts as we are. And I would probably think off the top of my head that that might be a more uncomfortable dichotomy to deal with. If, like my father, you were in the military at the time of the Korean War, Uh, he wasn't in the conflict itself. Or like uh, friends of mine who were part of the Vietnam War, or even more recently one of these Iraq conflicts, would it be harder for you, having served in a conflict of that sort, to have a judgment about whether or not America, in particular, should be engaging in so many military conflicts. The question to me is, should we be seeking a military solution so early, or even first and foremost, to the problems that we face? I saw an article, and I can't remember who it was attributed to, which is a shame, because here I am recording. But I saw an article that basically drew up the lines and said that the military should be a wing of a diplomatic approach to solving problems. And instead, we're finding more and more here in, say, the 2000-teens, and really goes back to 9-11 at least, is that diplomacy is being increasingly viewed as a wing to a military solution to problems. In other words, we've got it exactly backwards. We send in the troops perhaps far too often and far too aggressively for what we actually need to do to resolve issues. And during the Bush era of the uh, both Bush eras, probably, but during the most recent George W. Bush era, we were seeking the military solution, perhaps even first and foremost. We were quick to go there, quick to go in, almost looking for a fight, is how I would describe it. You certainly could understand the George W. Bush era of Iraq War, the second conflict in Iraq, from the perspective of the president was looking for a fight and went out and found one. That may not be the best explanation, certainly not the only explanation, but it's a valid explanation for us being into a conflict with such, uh, such a lack of clear objectives and exit strategy. And here we are in Afghanistan, clearly dealing with the fact that we started there, and throughout both the Bush and Obama administrations have persisted there, without a clear set of objectives and a measurable exit strategy. Is it possible for you to be somebody who served bravely and proudly, Let's say in World War II, because I think that makes the equation much, much simpler, looking at a lot of these other future conflicts as things which are less than the critical historical importance of what you participated in, and therefore highly suspect from the perspective of military history. One of the ways I can answer that question is to go to our different drummer, an actor, someone we think of first and foremost for his film roles than anything he did before that, But I want to start with his military experience. (music) Wikipedia describes Lee Marvin this way. An American film and television actor, known for his distinctive voice, white hair, tall stature... Marvin initially appeared in supporting roles, mostly villains, soldiers, and other hard-boiled characters. From 1957 to 1960, he starred as Detective Lieutenant Frank Ballinger in the NBC crime series M-Squad. In 1966, he won several awards, including the Academy Award for Best Actor, and the BAFTA, and the Golden Globe, for dual roles he portrayed in the movie Cat Ballou*. That's their introduction to him. My suggestion, though, is that Marvin may be as interesting for his military service during World War II, and in some ways, his time spent in the Pacific theater gives insight into the kinds of characters and the way he portrayed those characters, his no-nonsense style, as a screen actor. Quickly, and then I'll dismiss Wikipedia, just a little bit on the military service. Marvin left school at 18 to enlist in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve on August 12, 1942, so during the war, He served with the 4th Marine Division in the Pacific Theater during World War II. And while serving as a member of the I-Company, 3rd Battalion, 24th Marine's 4th Marine Division, he was wounded in action on June 18, 1944, during the Battle of Saipan, during which most of his company were casualties. He was shot by machine gun fire, which severed his sciatic nerve, and then again was hit in the foot by a sniper. And after over a year of medical treatment in naval hospitals, Marvin was given a medical discharge with the rank of Private First Class. He had been a corporal years earlier, in 1945. It does suggest that Marvin was uh, intent upon returning to military service as long as the war was going on, and he might have described himself as, perhaps unfortunately, recovering, but recovering after the war was over, and not being able to rejoin in the fight. His family was asked, in an interview by a biographer about whether there was information that he could glean from the people that he served with during the war. But as this article suggests, the overwhelming majority of them were killed in battle, either in that uh, Battle of Saipan or later at Iwo Jima, which is where the troops went after the fact. There is an interment, an interview, uh, a, a hoax, if you will, or at the very least an exaggeration going around, that Marvin served in Iwo Jima and received a Navy Cross, uh, and actually was uh, served as a Marine with uh, Bob Keeshan, who was Captain Kangaroo, during the war, uh, none of these things were actually true. It is true that Bob Keeshan served as a Marine during the war, but not at the same time or in the same place as Lee Marvin. And anything that Marvin would have said or interviewed or would have been construed to have been said in interviews about Captain Kangaroo would not have been based on personal and direct experience. Wikipedia makes an attempt to clear this up, and of course, great on the Wikipedia scale for accuracy here. But it says that Marvin's military awards include the Purple Heart Medal, the Presidential Unit Citation, the American Campaign Medal, the Asian Pacific Campaign Medal, and the World War II Victory Medal. So, not that he wasn't an honored and decorated soldier, but not necessarily to the heights and degrees that you'll see in some of the articles which, frankly, can and should be debunked by things like Snopes.com. The main reason, though, that I'm calling out Marvin is that he poses an interesting dichotomy. He is somebody who was married multiple times and was sued by a uh, a live-in partner, um, you know, one of the early, I think, perhaps palimony suits that was out there, and yet somebody who I think would be viewed as probably faithful all the same. Served in military service, always played the uh, hard-boiled, gritty, tough guy, Uh, able to stand side-by-side with John Wayne and others, Uh, actually one of the bad guys in classic John Wayne films like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, somebody who puts off what you might automatically assume if you were, again, living with the false dichotomies that we kind of dwell in today, is maybe somebody who fits that classic uh, Republican, conservative um, role, somebody who would have a lot of uh, pro-military perspective, if only because he served, and somebody who might uh, look down down his nose on people that could be described as either yellow or sissies or pansies or or whatever. I want to come along a little bit later to his film career and, and try to put some of the things that are interesting about his personal life in context with the movies, but it may be helpful to deal with some of the observations made by somebody who could be described as Marvin's biographer. On Huffington Post, I saw an article that was originally posted April 7th, 2014, written by Steve Karras, but it was actually Karras uh, as a writer doing an interview with biographer Dwayne Epstein on the late actor Lee Marvin. And the most interesting things about this article, which can be found on HuffingtonPost.com, come from the Q&A sections of the article itself. So I want to share just a little bit of this, but it's well worth seeking out for anyone who wants to know more about Marvin. biographer, Epstein, says this. Lee Marvin was of a different time and a different place entirely. I didn't live through the Depression. I didn't see combat in World War II. I'm a baby boomer. That whole lifestyle and existence is foreign to me. But the more I found out about him, the more I realized that that's true, yes. But there's a lot about Marvin that I thought people just don't know or realize. Yes, he's the product of his time. But in a lot of ways, he's very different from his time. and And he, believe it or not... He was very early on stated he had no problem with gay rights, and he thought that homosexuality was fine. You know, you're not going to hear John Wayne say that. And then later on in the interview, he gets asked a question. After speaking in terms of uh, you know, Marvin actually being even somewhat of a feminist, despite the fact that he had some very public um, issues related to you know, marriages and the dissolution of relationships, the question was this. Okay, you've written this definitive biography, but were there any epiphanies about Marvin in your research, where you might have said to yourself, wow, I wasn't expecting that? Epstein answers, absolutely. From the minute to the overwhelming, and everything in between. It was a spectrum of finding things, and that's one of the things that kept me going on the project, is that I'd never never hit a dead end. Just on the most superficial level, I was amazed to find out that Lee was a huge fan of blues and jazz. I don't know why. For some reason, I just never thought of that. But he loved classic blues. His son told me, and he doesn't even know if this is true or not, but Lee loved to tell people, he ran away from home a lot when he was a little boy. He was actually on a train to Chicago when he was four. I mean, he didn't waste any time. Apparently, in one of those trips, he met in a boxcar, Blind Lemon Jefferson, and became a fan. His son even said to me, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'd like to think it is. The other thing is that because of the kind of persona he had and the characters he played... People assumed he was some right-wing conservative, politically or philosophically. Not true. They make the false assumption that he must have been like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood because of what he did in his films. He was actually a liberal Democrat. He was a delegate for John F. Kennedy in 1960. But after Kennedy was assassinated, he never publicly stated anything about his politics again. One neighbor of his that I interviewed said, I wouldn't say that he was the left of Mao Zedong or anything like that, but he was a pretty liberal guy. I would say only that the only thing he was conservative about was gun rights. He was a very strong proponent of the Second Amendment, which is understandable. That's some of the things that I would come across that surprised me. I put forth this hypothesis, Epstein says, that Lee Marvin invented the modern American cinema of violence. When you study somebody's career, you're going to see natural threads come forward and take place, and themes in the work of Lee Marvin, violence always played a part. Not necessarily if the character was violent or if the story was, but either one or the other, or was in his background or what have you. In any given film, it didn't matter. And I thought, what about the idea that before him there were action films, which of course there still are, but with Lee it was about violence. And where did that come from? To my mind, Lee Marvin was to film violence, what Marlon Brando was to film acting, or Elvis Presley was to pop culture, to pop music, what Jack Kerouac may have been to contemporary literature he was a dividing line between what was and what is
1: you don't spend all those years playing Dungeons and dragons and not learn a little something about courage (laughs) it's awesome I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com.
0: Perhaps those who've listened to a lot of these inappropriate conversations would quickly guess that what attracts me most to Lee Marvin as a different drummer is perhaps those surprises, that depth, the unpredictability, the range. Different drummer as a concept about people who go a different route, march to their own beat. And when the uh, biographer talks about the simmering violence, sometimes overt, sometimes in the background, I think you can see that in the films that he appeared in. Bad Day at Black Rock, The Cane Mutiny, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Killers. Even in Cat Ballou, played for comedy in many cases. He was both at the same time the drunken hero and the villain, and uh, gun, gunfire and gunplay had a lot to do with it. The Dirty Dozen might be the most famous, uh, perhaps deservedly famous, of the movies that he was in. Point blank, perhaps the most underappreciated, and it's not to say that it's not appreciated as as it is, but perhaps the most underappreciated of his films. Most people probably wouldn't have the first clue that the Mel Gibson movie Payback is, if not a remake, a point blank, certainly a variation on a theme. The last movie from him that I can remember seeing was Gorky Park, and he, although I remember enjoying the film when I saw it in 1983, and again a few years later, it's been decades since I've seen it, and I can't really recall much about his particular role in that movie. The one that I'd like to highlight at the end here, especially looking at World War II and the end of that war, particularly in the European theater of that war, is The Big Red One. This movie is sitting currently on my DVR. I've watched part of it. I haven't gotten all the way through it. It was a movie that I know that my dad actually respected and for whatever reason could not get me to sit down and watch with him. Not that he tried a lot, but he tried at least once. My attention span during those high school years was, uh, well... It wasn't always as long as it could be, perhaps. But the interesting thing about the Big Red One is that if the Dirty Dozen, the uh, Robert Aldrich film, might be the most famous movie that Lee Marvin has been in, interestingly, it wasn't one that he was a fan of. He didn't like the unrealistic depiction of war, thought it to be perhaps a little bit cartoonish in its its depiction. And having actually uh, served in World War II, of course in the other theater, but served in World War II, probably didn't enjoy it being taken lightly. He took advantage of the opportunity when Sam Filler pitched The Big Red One to him to appear in a movie that might be much more realistic, or at least that he would have some say in how that particular war was depicted, uh, both in um, North Africa and in Europe. So The Big Red One is on high on my list of movies that I need to finish watching. I also have uh, let the DVR uh, be set to record Paint Your Wagon, which is going to rerun here in the near future on cable, a musical. Featuring Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood, which, if you were unfamiliar with Paint Your Wagon, has got to be the most unexpected thing I could ever have said in a different drummer segment about Lee Marvin. Yes, he was in a musical, and yes, he sings. And he would have been the first one to acknowledge that, no, he's not a singer. The only other mention I'll make of his appearances, Twilight Zone. Uh, As an ex-boxer in the uh, episode called Steel, and as a gunfighter, uh, kind of facing an uncertain fate, in the episode, Grave, and again, playing those kinds of, uh, of either hard-boiled characters or uh, just, you know, those tough guy roles. It's interesting to me that somebody whose experiences led themselves to, uh, you know, sort of that tough guy persona, raised during the Depression, uh, run, running away often from home, not doing well in school, joining the military as an escape from the fact that he probably never was going to be a scholar, and uh, obviously, you know, being injured in the war and, and recovering from those injuries and going on to play, you know, gunfighters and uh, tough guys and military people. You wonder, his comments about the difference between Sam Fuller as a director and Robert Aldrich or Sam Peckinpah as a director give you a sense that maybe this biographer's onto something. That the feminism of Lee Marvin, if there is a concept like that worth exploring, might not have appeared in being, uh, you know, soft and sensitive. But maybe Lee Marvin wasn't the biggest fan of the movie Straw Dogs, and if you're familiar with Peckinpah's work and Straw Dogs, it'd be easy to figure out why. It's enough for now to call out the interesting contrast between Marvin's experience in military and his his attitude toward future military conflict. Not a fan of the wars in Korea and Vietnam. Not necessarily a fan of the idea that the first thing we should do when there's a problem in, in... somewhere in the world is declare that our own uh, interests are being compromised and drop the bombs and send in the troops just because you're part of the military doesn't make you pro-military, at least not in every conceivable form of potential conflict. When I talk about either-ors and you know how bad the false dichotomies have become, hopefully the different drummer segment has presented us with somebody who is perhaps a walking embodiment of how that dichotomy simply doesn't work. You can't make assumptions about somebody's attitude toward international conflict simply based on the fact that they served for a time in the military. Any more than you can make an assumption about the fact that somebody who played tough guy roles and shot first and asked questions later believed that we should be shooting first and asking questions later. I would even raise the question of whether or not his staunch defense of the right to own guns would line up as cleanly today as it did back during his time. He died in the 1980s. Would, Would Marvin be as comfortable as so many political conservatives are today, with more than 20 toddlers gunning people down, just so far in the year 2016 alone, and whether we could use the term a good man with a gun to describe a toddler and all of these unintentional accidental shootings, or would he be perhaps more like me, not opposed to gun ownership and gun rights, but a little bit outraged that the standards for which we are using guns, the training, the the legacy from generation to generation, handing down the standards and the right ways The etiquette of gun ownership, for want of a better word, is so sadly wanting, and an organization like the National Rifle Association, that for years and years, held itself up as a pinnacle of that exact type of training, now almost being diametrically opposed to the training that should be its legacy. We may never know what Lee Marvin would have thought between the years 1987 and today My guess is he would still be a staunch defender of the Second Amendment and the right of individuals to own guns. My guess is also that, like his points of view about the use of military force internationally, he might expect us to be a bit more responsible and a bit more pragmatic in how we exercise those rights today. Perhaps, just perhaps, we should be putting as much energy into celebrating the end of wars, like World War II in Europe and World War II in Japan, As we do about things like dropping bombs or holding a grudge over things years and years later, like Hitler's lies and Pearl Harbor. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Show notes are enabled and comments can be placed on the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I also am on Stitcher Smart Radio Inappropriate Conversations is the feed that features both the new episodes for Inappropriate Conversations and also for Walk the Earth. And as I mentioned earlier, the Inappropriate Conversations podcast has a presence on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.